Welcome back to the Knit British Podcast. The podcast that explores all the connections of Britishness in wool, fibre and knitting. On this journey, meeting all of the people involved from sheep to skein, I am your host, Louise Scully. Knit British, love local wool. Welcome into this special episode of the Knit British podcast, where we go on a trip to Uist Wool. Back in May this year, I was really fortunate to get the opportunity to go and visit Uist Wool in Grimsey, North Uist, in the Western Isles. The Uist Wool Centre officially launched and started trading in November last year. But the seeds were sown for the initial project long before that. That culminated in a project being established in the summer of 2011 with a plan to develop a mill using local wool to manufacture local yarn. There was also opportunities to develop training and employment And that took a lot of fundraising and awareness raising, as you will hear in this episode today. I first heard about Uist Wool at the Highland Wool Festival in Dingwall in 2014. They had a stand and they had the most incredible jumper that I think was made from Blueface Lester and Cheviot. And they had lots of fleece and all the fleece bags had little tags on them describing the potential of the wool for yarn. It also described what grade it was uh, in their grading process. There were little uh, samples of spun wool too. I was really keen to learn more and see how the project developed. Last year's theme for November was the politics of wool and we used the phrase hashtag be the change for wool quite a lot and because I knew that Uist Wool was aiming to bring back wool work to that particular part of the Western Isles and produce yarn in Uist. I asked if mill director Dana McPhee and mill manager Hazel Smith would like to contribute a piece about the work they were doing for November last year and you can read those pieces at wovember.com. Fast forward a little bit to Edinburgh Yarn Festival this year and I met Dana and Hazel and just a few weeks later I was flying out to Bimbecula to visit them at the mill in Grimsey. We'll do a tour of the mill with mill manager Hazel where we go from woolshed to washhouse and we meet Marple the dog and we go into the washhouse and meet Fiona and talk a little bit about the work that she does there. We go onto the mill floor and we talk to Maddie who's the mill technician and then we go to the shop where we talk about some of the different core yarns that are available and some of the fantastic things that have been made in used wool. But first, listen to myself and Dana talking about the project, the mill and her involvement from the start. Uist Wool is a charity and it's a community benefit society. And the first seeds of Uist Wool were sown way back in 2008, as Dana explains. I really have to think back and go, 
how did I get involved? Because I can't claim credit for being the person who came up with the idea, because I didn't. And it was really more um, Mary Norton, who is our chairperson, who has a good friend um, from America, uh, Libby Mills, who established the Green Mountain Spinnery in Vermont back in the early 70s, her and uh, two friends of hers. And um, because uh, Libby was over for holiday, she and Mary were like talking about what was happening with local wool. And I think at that point, the wool price had really hit a low. I mean, it's low anyway, but it had gone super low. And I think a lot of people were getting, they were burning and, you know, yeah. dumping and stuff like that. And uh, and Libby was going, well, you know, it's exactly the same position they were in in Vermont in the early 70s. And they decided to try and change that and mm-hmm. create a, a purpose for local wool. So that kind of idea started. And I knew about it, obviously, because I was friendly with Mary anyway. At the time, I was working with the Tykershava Museum and Arts Centre in, in Nohmadi. And uh, so although I wasn't there for the, like, the first meeting, I was aware of it. And I was kind of keeping an eye on it from a distance. Uh-huh. And they had a couple of discussion groups going about looking at the feasibility of whether it would happen. And I think it was at that stage, just when we were going to get going on the on the research and feasibility, that I got involved directly. And Because um, I was kind of helping, but in the background. And then we were lucky to get some funding to employ a consultant to do the, all the research and feasibility into seeing whether a mill here would be viable and um, Louise Butler who's um, based on the borders did that work for us and we did a lot of questionnaires to crofters to local craft producers who use wool um, visitors to the island and you know the general public really mm-hmm. just to find out what their responses would be to do you think it's a good idea, etc., etc.? So there was quite a body of evidence built up, and when the feasibility was study was completed, it kind of said, "Yeah, it could work." So in a way, we then had the the written evidence to go to our funder to try and get some money, and that's really where the hard work started. We'd done workshops and community residencies and things like that, so we'd we'd done a little bit of practical work as well as the research, but really convincing that first funder to open their purse is always the challenge and luckily we did have a private donor who said right I'll give you a bit of investment and then that at least gives you something to go to a funder with and say we have some funding already match it yes and How we, wonderful. well it was and I have to say I think it would have been a struggle to get off the ground to convince public funding because we are a Scottish charity we were established in used wool the wool development group was a sort of precursor to used wool and that was established in 2009 and um, and then in 2011 used wool was officially legally formed Mm -hmm. and it was really only at that point we could go and and start doing the serious money hunt Um, and we decided then to split the project into two phases to build the mill first and focus on training because we'd identified machinery, we knew where it was and so we'd done a bit of groundwork and then I applied to the leader, which is European yeah. funding and um, they matched our private donor and we were able then to start work on construction of the mill and employ a 
part-time coordinators, which I, I applied and I got the job, basically. <laughs> I, I did take a, a year out. I, I left Tekarshava and I, I basically spent a year doing writing applications, really dull, boring <laughs> stuff, but essential. Um, and at the same time, I was applying for funding for the, the capital work. Um, I was developing a training project and again applying to Europe again. I keep saying Europe mm-hmm. and the European Social Fund, um, a large and complicated fund, um, but they did have training money and they had significant amounts of training money. So I applied and we got that too, which I felt almost stunned because that was almost a quarter of a million pounds. Wow. And I was stunned as well, actually, and I think probably so stunned that... Um, you know, it took a little while for the training project really to start, and because with all these funds, you have to spend money before you can claim it back. And when you're starting with zero, it's very hard to spend money, you know. So it was a wee bit slow. So, but anyway, we got there, and I was very lucky that with the training work, the way we'd staged it, um, it you know, we had an introductory level. It was like the basic two-day introduction to wool work, which was just giving people an opportunity to look at different fleece types try a little bit of um, you know hand work with with wool and also cover some of the industry you know what was current what was topical mm-hmm. in wool work in the UK and that in a way we were turning up putting out a wee trail of breadcrumbs for people because you you know we can build the mill and we can get the machinery and all that kind of stuff but then where are your staff coming from where yeah. are your, where are your trained skilled um, workforce and the last mill in Uist closed in the early 1960s. Although people could remember it, there was nobody who had the kind of day-to-day knowledge of how to run machinery. Fortunately, obviously in Lewis, the Harris Tweed industry, although had its dips, but still the people there still had the knowledge and were able to carry on with the industry. Training for us was a vital part of it all and one of the main foundation blocks of the project because... People, you were then asking them to maybe do the introductory level and then maybe commit a little bit more to like an intermediate level of training where it was a 10-week course. Again, part-time, it was three days a week. We were paying an attendance allowance. So they were able to, if they were having to take time off work, at least to get some mm-hmm. bit of money back. And it was an incentive as well mm-hmm. just to m- make sure people were... It's a bit more serious, a bit more commitment required... And then the final stage, really, the third level, um, was the placement, mill placement. And we called it millcraft engineering placement. And that was really the first time the word engineering had appeared in any of my publicity about the training course. At that stage, it was competitive. People had to apply and they were interviewed. So, um, But the people who'd actually attended some of our prior training course, you know, they were, they'd done some hands-on work. They'd been to other mills. They, they were kind of a bit more sort of serious about doing the placement. And that placement level lasted two years, and uh, we had six trainees and that all together. I'm happy to say that five of those are employed with us now. It worked in a sense of trying to establish a, a sort of industry where yeah. none existed before. And what so, was the thought of the local community when you first said about starting a mill? to then what, what it was after that and you, you know, see that there was an industry in it, and it was yeah I think it's, it's it's difficult to convince people when they're when you're starting from nothing 
you know, I've had sceptics kind of say, oh, it'll never work. And they'll, they'll always say that about anything because yeah. yeah. they're sceptical by nature. Yeah. So you're not going to change people's nature. And in a way, I'll just, I just charge on. And, you know, we had good support from the local community in terms of during the training project, we were asking for donations of fleece um, so that we had the, some raw material to, to work with and to basically use in our research and that was really overwhelming and so a lot of people were very interested they came to our open days, they asked questions and while the mill we, we opened, the, the mill itself was completed in June 2013 so we had an open day for people just to come in and have a look around and that, we had almost 200 people at that so that in a way for a small island is, is a good turnout on yeah. a Saturday when there's <laughs> other things on people's minds and then we've always tried to keep people informed of what we're doing and um trying to just let them know what we're attending local agricultural shows and you know doing the stuff in the local paper um, and obviously using social media to to update Um, not everybody uses that obviously so we still have to do a lot in print um, just to keep people posted but still I know people if they've seen the mill building they've seen it and they still probably think we're in here at spinning wheels or doing (laughs) something by hand you know they're, they're just thinking you're using machinery like like there's like oh I didn't realise that you know <laughs> so, so we yeah. said a lot in the mm-hmm. last month in the 60s was that milling mm-hmm. for cloth production yes so yeah, this yeah. is different again mm-hmm. people will be like yeah. this is yarn this, this is-, is yarn and part of our you know and I, I always felt it was good to do this as part of the training and set up stage of, of the project um, it was to commission people locally in the, in the Western Isles to actually make things from our yarn yes. because we needed to see it in a in a three-dimensional form or in a textile or in a flat piece of cloth because yes we can produce yarn but then that's only half the story it's when you it goes out in the world and becomes something you know you have to be sure that it's it's working correctly and um, so we had we had a few commissions and a few projects going where we we and then that gave us pieces that we could showcase and use in the advertising and say, actually, you know, you can make something wearable from local wool, that it's not just, um, you know, consigned to the carpet and and all the the bigger industry, which is important in the UK. I I respect that. Um, And I I would say probably there's 60% of local wool we wouldn't be able to process anyway. It's it's character is too tough for our machinery. And it would be hard work to create something um, commercial out of at this level. Mm-hmm. So, um, but so that there'll always be people who'll who'll still use the woolboard scheme for for. And I'm quite happy they do. I mean, I know from statistics, probably about two or three years old now, there was over a hundred thousand kilos sent from the Western Isles to the woolboard scheme. Now, not everybody's in the scheme, so there's probably more wool than that grown in the Western Isles, and. Um, we're only looking for, you know, three and a half, maybe four thousand kilos out of that. So, the wool's going to be around for a while yet, yes. and I think if we can add value, and that was always my motivation, is to to keep the value of the wool local to used and the Outer Hebrides, and you're creating work, you're creating something attractive that people want to buy, and that by doing that you're actually supporting. A, a kind of rural industry here, and it's not it's not romantic. It's hard work, but I'm I'm just really encouraged by what I'm seeing being produced. 
Dana's vision to have items made in used wool to show people just what the wool produced there looks like, how it feels, how it wears. That is just so brilliant and so critical, I think. The innovations of the different yarns being created there, the different weights, single breed yarns, the different blends, they're already so covetable, so squishable and so cast ornable. But folk new to breed wool or artisan milled wool are able to see these yarns in structure, in dimension and it's opening eyes to lesser known breed yarns like Tessel or Scottish Mule or Cheviot. And when you see these incredible yarns knit up, and there are pictures in the show notes, and we will talk more about these yarns and the resulting fabric, they really are an incredible testament to the passion and knowledge that goes into creating yarn. And not only that, but yarn that is helping crofters get a better return for their clip. We talk a little bit about the art form that it is filling in a funding application and that something like that can take months to do well and perfect to be able to get an award. But that aside, the feeling of being able to now trade and make money for the mill and the local economy and the crofter for Dana and the team is absolutely second to none. I have been applying for grants, actively applying, and we would never have got to this stage if it was just done on private capital alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's almost taken us a million pounds to, to get to this point in time of, of funding. Not all that has been grants, some has been private, and some is, is a social loan. So it's, it's, it's a complex financial pattern that's got us to this point in time. But now it gives me great joy when people come in and, and are buying, and I'm going, I'm actually, we're actually trading now, you know? <laughs> and we've made that transition from a training and a setup and a development where we couldn't resell anything and it was all test yarn and stuff. And now being in a position to say, absolutely, we're open and happy and we're sharing it and we can buy it and yeah. things that are updated regularly and we've got a new yarn coming through. and you're seeing it beginning to sort of settle into a, a kind of a, this is what I had in mind, you know and it still surprises me and it's just, I, I see I still <laughs> smile a little bit you know, when even just one person is buying a skein of yarn and I know what's going to create that that 100 gram skein that they're walking out with I know what's going to create that from n- nothing and I'm handing it to them and it's like I'm almost pulling it back a little bit and that sounds terrible. Now be, be careful with it now. Take good care of it. You know, it's like you're letting it go to survive <laughs> in the world. I know. Be good with it now. Don't don't be harsh and you know, and then, don't don't mistreat it. And, you know. <laughs> and it's almost like you're sending a child away yes. to school the first that's time. The, so. That's the so it does. You do. You have. Yeah. You've taken it personally because, mm-hmm. as I say, you know what's going into it. And, and I'm sure you go to any other mill, and people I know who's been very kind to share their experience and knowledge in the industry throughout the UK. Um, I've, I've found that a, a complete open door wherever ah. I've gone in the development stage, that people were more than happy to talk about it. And you know, they weren't sceptical at all about what we were doing. They were very interested in what we were doing. And so I, I and I felt that atmosphere, especially even at Edinburgh Yarn Festival, where we were beside big names, people I'd kind of known and respected from a distance for a number of years, and they were just so open and kind of encouraging to us. And I didn't feel compi- 
competitive. No. There wasn't that sort of. It was a professional respect. I thought was there that I I just thought that was a, a really nice atmosphere, mm-hmm. and and that's the way I would treat everybody yeah. who's in the industry in the UK is that they're all doing something different, and I admire other people's styles of wool and what they're doing with it. We're all doing something different. How do you think European funding will be affected? The current programmes, obviously, um, that I'm aware of are, are obviously going to be honoured, they'll exist. Mm-hmm. But there's nobody speculating at all at the moment on, on what's going to happen. Clearly, the, the, the government, anything they're seeing at the moment is, is always said, wait and see. At the moment, I think we're, at a, lo- we're a long way from the government that sits in London. And the idea that they'll certainly match what we got from Europe, I think, is not going to happen. And they'll say, oh yes, of course, we'll, we'll replace that sort of level of support with, with funding from within the UK. And I'm going, fair enough, okay then, um, it may happen. But it's not just about the money. I feel, I've, you know, certainly we had good connections and we'll, we'll maintain these connections with our, our colleagues in, in mainland Europe because... And this is a very island thing. You come from an island, you know this. I regard the mainland not as the mainland. To me, that's that's like an export market for mm-hmm. us. So I'm just treating Europe the same way as I would treat the mainland. You know, the relationship we have with people and customers on the mainland is I'd have the same relationship with people further afield, whether yeah. they're in Europe or whether they're in America or Australia or wherever. So there'll always be some kind of public funding. We've done very well out of European funding and what's going to come up in the future? I'd love to say money would be devolved to uh, the Scottish Government and then we would have a bit of a closer connection with it. But I would I would like to see that happen. But if it does in my lifetime, I don't know. My feeling is we, we really have to try and be more responsible and kind of independent from funding now. And really be trading on our own rights and any additional funding will be a bonus and there'll always there'll be lottery funding and things like that for yes. various community projects and educational projects and things so at our scale because we're not looking for huge sums of money for anything it's probably okay i think for infrastructure projects it's going to be challenging to to get big infrastructure pro- projects off the ground yeah. now in the in the current climate but i'm, I'm not an expert on that really we have good connections with Northern European networks, Scandinavia, and I'll continue them as uh, Brexit can come and go as far as I'm concerned. You know, as far as I'm concerned, my connections are with everybody, yes. <laughs> wherever they're from, whether <laughs> Dundee or Dusseldorf, <laughs> to be quite honest. What an absolutely wonderful outlook to have. And going back to what Dana was saying a little bit earlier about everyone doing their own thing, how wonderful is it that everyone is doing their own unique thing? It might be that they are using very similar or the same raw materials, but the results can be so unique and so different. And, well, wait until we get into the shop and you hear us talking about some of these special yarns. The branding of used wool is just done so beautifully and so cleanly, I think. Their logo is a really beautiful configuration of shepherd's hooks. And each yarn has a Gaelic name, which some of us, me definitely, (laughs) can struggle with some of the pronunciations. 
I recently knit with the Rorscht yarn, which is a really magical blend of Cheviot and Svortbles, and it has an incredible gradient from white to black. And I knit a simple cowl in this just to show off that colour changing magic. And Rorscht, which I did say wrong the first time I talked about it on the podcast, means spring tide. And when you see the picture in the show notes of me wearing this cowl, there is such an ebb and flow to the colours in that yarn. Dan and I talked about the use of Gaelic in the yarn names. There's Frass, Gila, Rorscht, Contrai, Canach, Joe, Loop, Sheban. I hope I said those right. And it's really important to them to be able to give their yarn another identifying piece of the culture of where it has come from. Even though I did mention it is difficult for us non-Gales to say. Certainly for, for the Gaelic naming, uh, it gives a personality to the yarn. And it it's not just a kind of affection. Um, it is, it's, it's, when I talk about Gila or Fras or Contrai or Rorst or something, I immediately think of what they mean mm-hmm. in, their, in their English version. You know, what does Contrai mean and Rorst mean? It's, you know, it it's talks about the conditions of the tide. Yeah. And that's well, something I think we see that's every like day. The Rorsch, this one, yeah. but uh-huh. you know, when you look mm-hmm. at it, that's got an ebb and flow. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that really has got. Yeah. It's like extremes of it. Descriptive mm-hmm. for what yeah. it looks like, I think. Yeah. Well. well, I think what we're planning on doing is um, putting little sound bites into the website so that's that brilliant. if you put, if, if you record how you actually pronounce it, mm-hmm. you can click on a little icon and you can hear it. It's just a wee audio that's plug. Um, different. So. <laughs> I know. Version one, potato, potato, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's these uh-huh. these little things that then people yeah, because we do that. Then, like, even if one person learns a new Gaelic word, yeah. well, there you go. Exactly, <laughs> but also they learn something a bit, uh, you know, yeah. more about the the people who work here and mm-hmm. the the business. And, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's absolutely. Because yeah. we do have us, like at all regions in the in the UK, we have a culture and. Uh, so it's it's just to show that people that it's yeah. a different culture from what it is in Sky or or on yes. the west coast of Scotland or down in Devon or or wherever. So it's just part and part of yeah. our, our tangible culture as, yes. well. as well as learning a new word and the meaning of that word. I think this connects further into that sense of well-being that we get. When we are knitting with a yarn and we know its origins, we know the wool and the breeds that have gone into it, we know where it's been spun, we know where it's come from, and then we knit that into a really special pattern. And knowing a dimension more of the culture and the history and heritage of where that yarn has come from is another, it's another piece of that puzzle, isn't it? I liken what we do to, to the winemaking industry or the cheesemaking industry, or, you know, small scale, particularly wine, you know, because grapes have a different life depending on climate, etc. So each year it's have a different flavour or a different kind of sort of condition to it. Yeah. And I would say it's probably the same with wool. We respond to what we get in each year and go, right, we, we know we've had a mild winter, so there's probably going, I can see from our own sheep that there's, they're pretty woolly, yeah. so they've they've had a fairly good winter and there's been enough feeding and everything. So the yield might be higher 
because of now that's just me being observational in our yeah. own flocks here so once we start seeing the clip coming in we can assess that and go actually it's pretty good so we're already beginning to plan and I, you know what 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 are we going to see emerge from that clip obviously there's only so much white cheviate yarn you can produce but clearly our, our collections are more than the blends and the, the sort of the, the fancier sort of but again it's all stems from that what's coming in the door um, and responding to it as opposed to the scale we work at we can do that we, you know we're still early days for doing these kind of creative inventions as you can see from the board yes. behind <laughs> me that's charting all our kind of recipes and it is just us sitting down thinking what's in the shed what can we do let's try that we haven't got something like that and and it might be the most popular yarn we ever make or we, we might sell one skein of it but at this stage in our timeline we've got to try lots of different things yeah. um, just to see what's going to be popular and I can see one or two already that are slightly ahead of others so I say well we'll, we'll always try and reproduce ones that we know are doing reasonably well um, but I think we've still as I say refining the art a little yeah. bit trading. I wanted to ask Dana what she saw happening in the future for used wool, how they wanted to make more people aware of what they were doing and the kind of things they're producing in used. <laughs> I suppose to show people what we're doing um, and get out there, meet people, attend a few shows. This is in the immediate future for us in the next year or so. Um, you know, we have to get on the road. We have to go out, and we can't avoid. We can't leapfrog over that part. You know, there is going to be travelling around to shows and letting people handle our wool and talk to people. They may have heard about us, but it's very hard. Even though you have a good website and does all that for you and social media and all that, you know, you're only ever a thumbnail picture of some yarn or a picture of somebody wearing something is fine. But clearly, people need to touch and feel yeah. it. And, um, We're sensitive beings. Yeah, totally. And obviously I know when people advocate our rule to others, and that's an independent view on it, and that's that's gold dust, to be quite honest, when somebody's giving that honest third-party view. Hopefully they're, doing some, hopefully they're saying something nice about it. <laughs> so it could go the other way, which would be a bit disappointing. But hopefully there'll be you know positive comment and what are they called now? Social influencers, I suppose yeah. you're one, you know. So I know, well, I think so, I think so. So so I think that, that's a new direction, and I think that that will bring new customers to us. Um, for myself, I think there's still a little bit of work to do on the within the our area to stimulate a kind of enterprise of woolwork, where, you know, there's nobody weaving in use at all, whereas obviously Lewis and Harris have a very mature, well-developed weaving community through the Harris Tweed industry, whereas newest, it doesn't exist. There's hobby weavers who are doing sort of small things on looms, but they're not doing it commercially. There's nobody working in woolwork commercially in newest, mm-hmm. um, either developing pattern or very, you know, there's maybe one or two who are sort of doing it every now and again. But, um, but I know there's talent here, and it's to try and sort of bring on that talent a little bit 
maybe offering an apprenticeship here at the mill. So these are things that are very local to here. Yeah. Um, but again, it's educational work, training. I'd like to sort of reconnect like part of used wool. It's not just about the commercial trading aspect. It's the community experience. It's people who might want to visit here, learn a new yeah. skill. You know, it's it's a shop order. Or, or, or yeah. whose families are from here. It's mm-hmm. a connection to a part of their mm-hmm. history, their own personal history, and then this is going forward in a new generation that's totally different. Yeah. And that's yeah. that's an incredible yeah. thing to give people those skills that would have been the, the bread and butter for their Yes, know, it wasn't years. it wasn't a you know, a romantic hobby. It no. was just an essential part of your 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 working life and I'm not trying to recreate the past very, very much forward-looking you you respect the past and, and the, the sort of knowledge that's been handed on that that to me is an important thing because I live here and I work here and I would want to pass on that knowledge and skill to the next generation who are coming along rapidly behind me <laughs> as, I, as I move into my elder years but um, so that's that you know that's my kind of passion a wee bit mm-hmm. in terms of used wool development I mean we've often thought oh do we do we actually set up a a weave studio here, you know, a constructed textile studio of some kind. Though maybe that's maybe a bit ambitious, but um, you know, something else on site. You know, people would come or share their knowledge and skill, learn something new. You know, so that handing on. So that's maybe a wee idea. You know, twirling around yes. in my head just now. And it could be that residences might not be about. Um, I, I would say, what about a, 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 you know. Poet in residence, yes. or a kind of writer in residence, yes. or a yeah. sort of chemist in residence, yes. or something like that. But you know, it's just some people who've, who've got a kind of interest that might dovetail into something we're doing, yeah. and, and it's just ambitious. But I mean, ideally, I'd like to say, well, I, I can move back into the shadows a little bit, and my the team here at Useful can kind of charge on without me, and uh, <laughs> I can kind of retire. But uh, I'll probably move more into a sort of management committee level. Role and um, that's. You'll just come into the shop and tell people to be good with the rule when they buy. <laughs> I think so. I think so. And then um, you know I can phase myself out of the of the main day to day stuff um, and go back into the sort of development side a wee bit more. But, but for used wool, God, we have to got to make it work, make it work, and sell wool. And as I say, I I mentioned to you earlier on about. Um, you know, getting orders from overseas. I still get, you know, the a village, a, a town called Rough and Ready in Arizona <laughs> that I got an order from, and I'm thinking, I'm delighted that some of our yarn has gone to Rough and Ready, and it just, it just makes me smile that all these people are finding us and ordering yarn from us and making hopefully some beautiful items with it. I'm sure so they are. Um, that just gives me a thrill, yeah. <laughs> and I'll never get tired of that <laughs> at all. I just love Diana's vision for connecting folk to the wool. And not just that, but the experience of creating wool and the different aspects of wool work. She says she may be being ambitious with some of those ideas. I think it's just a continuation of that innovation and passion that Diana and the team have for the project and wanting more people to key into that. And innovation and passion is something that they really do have in bucket loads at Used Wool. When I was interviewing Diana, she was wearing an incredible Nuke sweater, which is from the Lane magazine. And it was knit in the Frass yarn, which is Cheviot yarn with peppering of black 
swarbles throughout and it's an incredible yarn knit up and the sweater is very simple but just beautiful mm. you said this is the first garment shape yes. you ever knit would you call yourself a knitter no no so how how are you making wool <laughs> <laughs> i did a back in the distant last century i did do a, a degree in in textiles actually uh-huh. uh, textiles and surface decoration and that covered everything it was a really good eclectic mix of of things and I did a bit of everything but actually specialised in print believe it or not but um, and I had great fun I did that for four years as a student in Aberdeen but I always liked mixing up the materials I wasn't ever happy just being shoehorned into one thing one discipline or the other so I really enjoyed machine knitting that was my thing because it was quick terrible hand knitter when I was younger awful tension was grim and I just I hated it (laughs) And so, but when I discovered machine knitting, it was like, way this yeah. is really fast. And I liked that because it was immediate. You could design something and pretty much make it in like two days. Yeah. And um, that was you ready to go. Then I could apply colour to it with print and all kinds of stuff. So in the 80s, we were all doing that kind of nonsense. And, um, and then, obviously, when I left college, I immediately started work doing kind of community education stuff with print and things. Um, there was a lot of um, inner city stuff we were doing then with kids and stuff to do education and that. That was in East Kilbride, actually. Okay. I applied for work with the local authority in Stornoway because, you know, at that stage you were looking for jobs everywhere and I wanted to be working um, and I applied for a graphic design post, of all things, with the local authority and I got an interview and luckily I didn't get the job. <laughs> I think I would have not. I remember, like, I had this massive, like, EO-sized portfolio, massive, and I sort of trundled it into the interview, and it slapped it on the table, and it had all this stuff in it. And then I remember the girl coming in after me had... I had never seen such a small portfolio. It was like an A6 size. It was tiny. It was like a tiny wee thing. And, like, she got the job, which was maybe a lesson to me, but... um, Anyway, so... But that day... I knew there was, uh, in the local museum, they were looking for somebody to do an exhibition that was a six-week contract, and uh, they needed somebody desperately to help them do this exhibition. So I went along, and uh, it was just a chance remark my mother had made to a fellow teacher and said they were desperate for something. So I went along and said, I can do it. And um, so they said, fine, great, started on Monday. And I worked at that museum for about two and a half years, they kept finding work. So I went back and did a, a, a degree in museum studies at St Andrews. It was great. It was like having a year off. We went and toured loads of different museums and galleries. <laughs> and, we'd, uh, and then obviously qualified then. And then I just went back to working in museums, um, finished my official curatorial exams and uh, was working as the museums officer with the local authority in the US and Barra. And I suppose then I was... You know, obviously doing the curatorial stuff, but building exhibitions and creating yeah. kind of events and activities, kids' activities and all that kind of stuff. And um, But I suppose community development was creeping in then, you know, and fundraising and doing that kind of stuff. So, And then when I worked at the Kershava, I was doing more on the admin, chief executive side there, and which was fine and I learned a lot, but a lot of me was like ugh, just sitting in an office and everybody else was doing the fun stuff. And... Um, I just thought, well, actually, with used wool, I could get a chance to, to do something that was almost going back to my original interest in textiles and, and constructed textiles, yeah. in a way. 
that's how I've kind of ended up. So I've kind of crept in sideways, but luckily <laughs> I work with some people who are fabulous knitters and uh, have encouraged me to pick up the pen yeah. and say, come on. So I did blog about my experience um, on the, it's on the useful website about Excellent. being a novice knitter and I've just started writing an update on that. Now I've finished my first Garment. It's gorgeous. So I'm, I'm well. It's it's, it's it's you know for a novice knitter, this is a fabulous pattern because it was very easy to follow and um, just Hazel keeping me right on a couple of things and but I was able to kind of work it out some of the things. Oh, yeah. I'll just be able to do that. And if it's wrong, tough. It's under it. it's under can... my arm. Who's yeah. going to see it? I really enjoyed it and it was really easy and. And then when I finished it, I was like, oh, what now? You know, oh, I don't oh, have a stash because... Well, <laughs> well okay shop. then, hang on. <laughs> Rewind, Dana. Yes, I have a stash and it's yeah, there. It's, it's, it's right beside my office. Yeah. Um, or our office, I should say. And uh, limit. It is. It's there and I have to see it every day and I look at it and go, oh. My, my habit is of just doing one pattern and then doing it to death about three or four times but I'm going to try not to do that you know my mum would keep like many people's mothers probably kept patterns and yes. women's weekly and yes. magazines that were like volumes yes. and distant past and I know my sister has kind of kept a, a bit of an archive of, of patterns that my mum had and um, and I just love looking th- I mean I just think oh you know just a I have to say, I, I like looking at patterns and things like that. Now I've been let into the secret club um, of, of people who understand the pattern instructions. So so I feel like I'm, I'm just beginning my late development yeah. as a hand knitter. Never too late. Never too late. And um, I'll be boring people with all my updates. Um, but uh, yeah, but I, I feel now I'm able to talk a wee bit about that because I felt I'm talking to people at shows and they're asking me, slightly technical questions luckily I can then defer to my colleagues yes. but I have to talk with some knowledge about how the yarn is mm-hmm. and I figure well you know I have the ability to make yeah. and but I'm enjoying it this time round. Right. I hated it when I was younger but I'm enjoying it this time round. <laughs> definitely <laughs> so so yes that's my backstory really <laughs> and yeah. before we finish up I also wanted to ask Dana what she thought was needed to secure a future for small wool businesses in the UK. And uh, what also becomes clear here is what being involved with a small wool business has meant personally to Dana too and how it's changed her own views about wool. You know, it's, a, it's a same thing because there are some very, very established, shall we say, structures to do with wool in the UK and I think what we're doing is, is sort of on a microscopic scale compared to some of these established structures and I'm an observer of them I'm not really sure how they all work I mean we had a good we do have a good relationship with the British Wool Marketing Board um, because their staff have been very helpful to mm-hmm. us but I think sometimes people lose the connection between where the wool is grown and where it ends up I think they just think wool, well, it's an international commodity now. There's a sector of the industry that yeah. how much are they able to buy it on, on a commodity market? Yeah. And it's obviously the better price they can get, the happier they are. And that's a very commercial decision. And uh, I don't feel part of that mm-hmm. at all because we're obviously going to hopefully make more money for the people who we see day to day, who we buy the wool from. Because if the idea is if we do well, 
the dividend will increase to them so that we're feeding back the, the better price. Now, I don't expect a big worldwide market to be doing that. You know, they're looking at their bottom line and all that kind of stuff. As I say, I'm an observer of that. Yeah. I have no real direct knowledge of it. On our scale, we're fighting hard to try and give the people who are growing the wool a wee bit of a better price. And if it makes, you know, a few pounds better off, so so be it. But also just to value the wool. Simple as that. It's just to see it as something that's grown, looked after. It's been looked after and grown. And if the sheep's well, you know, getting a good life and having a happy yeah. life wandering around the countryside, well, the wool itself is going to be good quality. And, you know, in the UK, there's such great wool. I really have to say, and it's just... And there's so many varieties. So many varieties. Virtually everybody I know who has sheep, yeah, it's for meat that they have the sheep. It's not for the wool. The wool is a a by-product, and it has to be clipped once a year and then get out of my my shed with it, you know, I don't want to see it again. And it's just to kind of change their attitude towards that wool a wee bit and say, actually, don't keep your sheep on straw before you're clipping because it's just gets stuck to it and it's a nightmare to remove and you know less with a spray you know people who go mad with these aerosols and yeah. my own husband and his brother are just as bad graffiti artists <laughs> anyway so it's just things like that where you're having to change people's habits yeah. and say just a wee bit more care just a, just before you go mad with a spray or yeah. before you, you clip you, you, you know you, you know. use the word value a couple of times there and it's it's value everywhere, the value that you put on the wool you get in to make the yarn that we value as knitters and crafters and weavers and crocheters or whatever. But then it's also getting, as you say, the crofter to value it in a different way. It's um, yes, it is a it's an animal for meat, but you have this byproduct and yes it does need to be sheared. Yes it can be a bit of a millstone around your neck, but look, here's what we can do with it and here's all these people who want it. It's changing people's habits. Yeah. And I think if you can do it and you know there are you know campaigns and I see it a lot more now obviously that um, you know certainly when I was younger it was, it was not done but there's a much wider perception about what can be done with local wool and um, just the pleasure we have in grading it and selecting really what we think I mean there's very little waste in what we do so um, we try and make everything we wash we try and use you know and people are paying more attention to having things that are going to last a bit longer and value a wee bit more of looking after it and just, you know, this whole thing of the you know the circular economy and all this yeah. kind of stuff too. I'd say, well, if we can put a wee bit of thought towards what we're doing, you yeah. know, and we can, I, I'm not saying what we're going to do is stop global warming and everything else, but, you know, yeah, I wish it would, world peace and all, yeah. but, but if we're doing positive action on our level, then, you know, that, that's that's got to be a good thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, Definitely. so I'm kind of, I should go off and stop ranting now. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not going to be buying another artificial fleece to wear. I know that now. Yes. It really annoyed me. I went looking for a wool coat about three or four years ago. I looked in all the high street stores for a wool coat. And I know in the 1980s when I went and bought wool coats, they were actually heavy wool mm-hmm. coats yeah. and then they would last and that, and I still have them yeah. I may not fit them but I still have them <laughs> and I went looking and my god I could have poked my finger through oh. a wind would go through that and yeah. you'd, you'd die a death and I thought <laughs> you know 
if there's anything I'm going to do is have a proper winter coat made of used wool. Yes. <laughs> so that's that's my aim. That's my ambition. Oh, thank you so much. Honestly, my pleasure. My pleasure. As I say, I could talk for years <laughs> about the subject of used wool, but I'm conscious that you know you've only got a limited amount of time. Well, it could be a three-part, four-part episode. <laughs> oh, geez, do you think? Do you think, do you think people would want me? Yes, I'm sure you'll agree. That it is so wonderful to hear of a project like Used Wool, dedicated to the wool, to the sheep, to the crofter, and to the finished yarn. And it's so fascinating getting an insight into how it's grown from the wool development group to what it is now, trading at usedwool.com. It's not only great to get that insight, but it's so great to talk to Diana, who is such a vital part of used wool getting it to where it is today. In our next episode, we will hear more from the team at used wool and we will get a sense of the journey that wool takes through the mill from the wool shed to the wash house to the mill floor and to the shop. You can listen right now to that episode via iTunes or at knitbritish.net.